Whenever I lament the fact that Desiree doesn't call me Reverend Doctor in the household, <laughs> or, or the fact that Jasmine doesn't call me Reverend Doctor Daddy, I am reminded of the words of our Savior where he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It'd be, it'd be the ones in your own house. Um, so, good, good morning, good morning, Mosaic. My name is, my name is Malcolm. I'm, 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 I'm the other one of the pastors here. Um, today, today we can, we're, we're going to continue in our series on the Gospel of John, and we're going to engage once more with the Samaritan woman at the well. So last week, we heard of the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and an individual in the scriptures, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And so we spent, we spent a fair amount of time looking, looking really closely at the, at the story, especially in light of the fact that it's often used to focus on this woman's supposed sin. There are, there are two points of agreement between, between me and Slim with this kind of co-pastor thing. One is that when it comes to dress, the two of us set like the, the, the poles of acceptable dress at Mosaic. So as long as you're in between, you're good. Um, the second, the second thing, <laughs> the second thing is that we, is that we always go over one another's sermons before we, before we preach. And so last week, um, when, when, when I was talking about uh, kind of, kind of the history of interpretation of this, of this text, uh, I focused on some ancient folks then. Uh, I want to go modern, I want to go modern today. So there was a, there's, there's, there's a recent sermon uh, the title of which was, uh, and you can see it up there, The Tragic Cost of Her Cavernous Thirst. <laughs> um, in this sermon, uh, I'm just going to quote the sermon. So, uh, no woman goes through sexual relationships with six men without either starting desperately thirsty or ending desperately thirsty. What happened with these six relationships? Five marriages, five there is in this woman, it seems, a cavernous void of longing, thirsting. Either she can't find in a man what she craves and so moves from one to the other, desperately believing men are the water she's, she is thirsty for, or they can't find what they're craving in her and one after the other drops her, or both. In either case, she is left with a deep, deep emptiness and sinfulness that is so painful and so rebellious that she seals it up. This came from, big reveal, J-Pipes. Okay, so um, I, would, I would suggest, and I would strongly suggest, that first of all, that first scenario, that, 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 that she's moving from man to man, that would be close to impossible for a woman in first century Samaria. The second, the second scenario that men either left her either by choice or by death, in no way reveals that she's at all sinful. And so to conclude that she's sinful and rebellious because of the circumstances that she endured is remarkably unkind. And also, and also I would say, unfaithful to the, to the text. So as a, as a side note, I, I mean, I want you all to know that when I, that when I, when I try to bring alternative and what I think are more just interpretations of scripture than what we're used to. 
I want you to know, like, I, like I'm not making stuff up. It's, it's important that I, that, I, that I bring you the best and most faithful material that's out there. Desiree sometimes gets nervous when I say we're going to do some like, massive reinterpreting of a text because she thinks I'm like, going out on a limb, which is fair, but I'm not alone. I and other, especially female biblical scholars, suggest something contrary, that, that perhaps this, this isn't a matter of sinful rebellion on the part of the Samaritan woman. Perhaps this is best understood as the Savior seeking out a sufferer to heal rather than seeking out a sinner to, to rebuke. And maybe, maybe it's the case that, that our role as the body of Christ, as those who live in union with Christ, as people who are supposed to share his priorities, share his care, and extend his love, maybe we ought to interact with one another beginning in Genesis 1 rather than in Genesis 3. First as bearers of the image of God, then as sinners as we all are. Bigger point, that's all right. In this conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, Christ revealed his supernatural knowledge of this woman's life, and he revealed to her that he's the Messiah and the giver of the Holy Spirit, which would be a spring of living water welling up into eternal life. And so after, after telling her the basics and the benefits of the gospel, she goes back to her town, and in a sense, she preaches the gospel to her town. And that's what we're talking about today. So last week, we focused on the woman herself, Christ's care for her, and broadly his care for all of the marginalized and the suffering. And this week, we're going to take a look at the responses of the other folk, the responses of the, of the disciples, of the Samaritans, and the words of Jesus himself. So the words of three characters, the words of the disciples, the words of Jesus, and the words of the town. So first of all, the words of the disciples. This, this text, the beginning of what, of what was read, is my favorite exchange in the entirety of the scriptures because it's hilarious. I heard some, I heard some chuckles, but yeah, I, I, I want us to get how, how hilarious this is. So in, in verse 27, the disciples come back and see Jesus talking to a woman, which is weird for them, but they don't ask any questions. To say, to say that they're surprised is a little bit of an understatement. The, 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 the word is ethalmazdon, which means that they, they, they wondered, they marveled. It's like, it's like they saw him talking to a woman and they thought, whoa, whoa, Jesus. This is John noting the cultural prejudice of his fellow disciples. Why shouldn't Jesus be talking to a woman? Like, like really, why, why shouldn't he be talking to a woman? Regardless of cultural assumptions, women and men are just as worthy of care and love as one another. And Jesus has no time for those patriarchal assumptions, and he, and he still doesn't have time for them. So, because of, because of rightful embarrassment, because the disciples are embarrassed, they don't ask him any questions, they don't say anything about it. And the woman then leaves her water jar, probably for Jesus to get some water, because we've already established that he's thirsty. And she goes back to her town and tells them to come, to, to come see Jesus, a man who very well could be the Messiah. So she leaves her water jar because she has become a water jar for her town, a spring out of which living water would further flow. But then the focus shifts back to the disciples, because during this whole conversation, they had been out getting food. So a few, few days ago, um, I, I, I had had meetings all day, and I came home, and I was about to go out to dinner. But then I, but then I found out that, 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 that Desiree and my mom had gone to Torchy's. And I thought, I really, really hope that they bring me something back. And so I called her, and I asked her, did you get tacos for me? And she responded and told me, of course, Malcolm, 
I got you your two beef fajitas and queso. In that moment, I felt so loved. <laughs> and I've been, I've been obsessed with beef like from the womb. And so, and so there's so, so like the first bite of a Shake Shack burger is just, is just absolute joy to me. And this is, and this is the kind of, this is, this is something, like, like this is the relationship that some of us have with, with just food. Like it's, it's, consider the joy that food can bring, the smell, the taste, especially when you're really, really, really hungry. Now, take a look at John 4, 31 to, 4, to 34. Presumably, Jesus hasn't eaten in a while, so he's hungry. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. That's a, that's a weird thing to say. We'll, we'll get there. Then, then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I just imagine there's just some heavy side-eyeing going on. Among the, among the disciples when Jesus says this. Hey, Jesus, want some food? Worry not, brothers, I have already eaten. Uh, there's like, there's nowhere nearby, Jesus. I don't, I don't know how that, how that happened. My food is to do the will of my Father. That's weird, Jesus, but sure. Some of you probably know people like this, people who, who, who respond to very simple questions in super spiritual ways. That, that may or may not answer the question, but sometimes it takes you a little time to, to, to figure it out. Well, Jesus is kind of like that, but he's always right. So Jesus begins this conversation by setting the priorities of the conversation. Because what he's done in these, in these two chapters, particularly chapter three and chapter four, is he's redefined the most common and most fleshly human experiences in spiritual ways. Birth, eating, and drinking. Every one of us has been born. Every one of us here has eaten. Every one of us here has drunk. And yet, what Jesus is establishing in these two chapters is that we need to think differently about being born and eating and drinking. What he just did with Nicodemus, in using that image of being born again, Nicodemus was confused. He's like, how can, how can a man enter again into, into his mother's womb? But, to, but what Jesus is laying out is that, hey, all of these, the, the, this physical act of birth is that actually symbolizes the deeper, more spiritual rebirth that all of us need to under that all of us need to undergo. The depth of change that needs to happen in all of our lives can only really be summed up by saying that we need to be born again. In talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he, redefi- he essentially redefines thirst as, as weakening as thirst is and, as, and as, as quenching as water is to our souls, so the, so, so, so the Holy Spirit is meant to quench that, that spiritual thirst that all of us have. And now in this conversation, he's doing the same thing with hunger. Meditating on and drawing from the well of the Spirit and doing the will of God ought to be to us as necessary to our lives as eating and drinking. Jesus isn't saying that he's not hungry and thirsty. He was at the time. But Jesus' priorities are relentlessly other-centered. While he may have been thirsty, he was also the source of true thirst-quenching. While, while he may have been hungry, he knew that the people whom he came to serve and to save were hungrier. In his ministry, his first priority was to seek and to save the least, the last, and the lost. Why? 
because the fruit of such a ministry is beautiful. Consider Christ's words in verses 35 to 38. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. After, after a very strange statement about eating, Jesus lays out why his ministry from the Father is so important. So, so, so generally, plowing season is around September, and reaping season is in April or May. And so if you're from an agricultural society, there's a, there's a rhythm to that life. It's, it's even kind of where we get the school year. Those, those nine months, it, 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 gets into, it gets into your bones when you've, when you've been doing that rhythm for a, for a long time. It's like, it's like the growth of a baby in the, womb, in the womb of a woman. There's a set time that's necessary for these important things to take place. And so when Jesus gives this example of the saying, it's still four months until harvest, and then continues and says, open your eyes and look at the fields, it's like, it's like taking summer break in January. It's like, it's, like, it's, it's, like, it's like a pregnant woman five months into the pregnancy being told, hey, your child is fully grown and is coming now. Now, that last example probably caused a little bit of panic. I mean, you don't have the nursery together. Don't, like, like, there's, like, if, if, if you're five months in, you're not thinking this is happening now. But, that, but that, that, that slight feeling of panic is actually exactly what Jesus is getting at. Because his coming and his ministry are wonderful gifts that no one is ready for. In fact, this is what Jesus' ministry looks like constantly. Take another look at verses 36 to 38. Even now... That is, even before the normal reaping season, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. What Jesus is telling his disciples is, hey, you guys have been worried about food. I've been worrying about souls. You've been looking at physical nourishment. I've been, I've been looking at holistic nourishment. Now, this is, now, what's important here is that he's not saying that bodies don't matter. We're not swinging to the side of the pendulum that says that bodies and material circumstances don't matter. What Jesus is saying is, look, we, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been doing the work of changing hearts and minds and drawing people to ourselves. Go reap. We did the work. Go, disciples, reap what you didn't work for. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, a, this, is a, this is a word of profound comfort to us. One of the values of Mosaic is that, is that we're gospel-centered, and we, and we narrate it this way, that, that this good news is too good to keep to ourselves. Therefore, every member of the body is called to share the gospel where they are and where God takes them. And one of the great things to know about this good news is that we're sharing the work of the Lord. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a freeing, there's a freeing level to that, to know that this is not something that I'm trying to convince you of. I'm just bearing, I'm just here to bear witness. The good news is that, is that you and I were created good, but we messed that up. The Lord gave each of us profound gifts, and yet we have used them for our glory rather than his. We've handed ourselves over willingly to slavery, to sin. 
and we're suffering because of it. That first step is often the hardest for folks, to understand that we are in deep, deep need. This is why Jesus and the scriptures in general have constant warnings to the rich and the well-off. Because it's very, very hard to see yourself in, in, in desperate need when you feel like you have everything that you could ever want. And so the gospel begins with this, it, 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 it starts with this, with this claim of our worth, but then, this, but then this fact that we've messed that up, that we're profoundly sinful and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Our envy, our pride, our lust, our selfishness, we know we've got it. And we can fight it with clenched fist and clenched teeth. Well, we can try, but we often fail. That bad news that we're all, if we don't get help, dead and hellbound. It's super grim. It's moral and spiritual suffering with no hope of redemption, but God. The good news, as it has been throughout the scriptures, is that the God of creation, when he sees his creation suffering, he's drawn to redeem them. Remember, the most important thing that God does for his people in the Old Testament is free them from slavery. Because the God of the scriptures is a God of liberation, a God of freedom. The, the historic black church gets this. A lot, of, a lot of other American Christians don't. But it's what the scriptures say. When, when, when God introduces himself to Israel, when he gives them the law, he doesn't say, hi, Israel, I'm the most powerful of the gods. He doesn't say, hi, Israel, I'm the kindest of the gods. He doesn't say, hi, Israel, I'm the most real of the gods. What he says in Exodus 20, verse 2 is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's basically saying, when you think of me, think of what I have done. Now, now I know, I know another, there's, a, there's another saying that circulates that we, don't, that, we don't, that we don't worship God for what he's done, but rather for who, for who he is, which is true. But, but the Lord actually places front and center for his people what he's done for them. And it's a pretty big deal. Like the only reason, the only way that we know who God is, is by what he has done. And so, and so as the Lord acted decisively on behalf of his people in freeing them from slavery, so he also acted decisively in taking on flesh in the person of the Son. The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his entire ministry is an act of God on behalf of the oppressed because that is what this God does. On behalf of the poor, on behalf of the helpless, on behalf of those who have languished under the weight of sin and fallenness. Are you helpless? Are you sinful? Are you in need? Are you suffering? Then the Son comes for you. Are you righteous? In need of nothing? Great with your current situation? Perfectly fine, not only with your own situation, but also with the situation of the suffering around you? Well, Jesus says that he did not come for you. That sounds harsh, but that's not, those aren't my words. Those are, those are Christ's. In Luke 5, 31 to 32, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The physician comes to heal and to refresh. He's the one who saves, and that is the good news. The best news, in fact. And that's, and that's why Jesus' framing of the benefits of the gospel in John 4 is one of overflowing abundance. The sower and the reaper can rejoice together. It's, it's a fulfillment of the promise in, in, in Amos 9, 13 to 14. It says this. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. Or that, that, that last phrase alternatively translated is, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. A time of eschatological plenty is at hand, and it's called the kingdom of God. And this text concludes with a hint of it breaking in. That whole, like, plowman being overtaken, like, it's, 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 just, it's just blessing tripping over blessing. And that's, and that's actually what we're seeing at the end of this passage, chapter 4, verses, verses 39 to 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because, what you, just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Christ's encouraging word to the woman at the well, his, his offering of himself, his, his care for her in her suffering was the seed that sprouted into a flowering plant of redemption for her and for her town. They come to Jesus and believe for themselves. Now, these Samaritans would have been expecting a prophet. According to Deuteronomy 18.18, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them all that I, that I command him. But the Jesus that they met was a prophet. But the Jesus that they met was also a priest. The Jesus that they met was also a king. And after a real encounter with this Jesus, they came away changed. They came away knowing that, that this man is not just a prophet, but he's also the savior of the world. This was the answer that they were waiting for. And so what does this mean for us, dear, dear sisters and dear brothers? It means that each and every one of us is called to be an ambassador of this gospel. And we're called to do so in every single space that we're in. Because what the, what the Samaritan woman did was she told her town what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And that was enough to activate the seed of belief that the Lord had already planted in these folks. But the real change didn't happen until they met Jesus for themselves. I grew up in a, in a, Christian, in a Christian home with wonderful Christian parents. And my, and my testimony is that, unlike, unlike Slim, whom the Lord plucked from the mire of egregious sin, um, I don't think... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It wasn't, probably, wasn't, probably wasn't that bad, but, you know. Um, I don't... I don't think for me there's ever, been a, there's ever been a time where I've considered a world in which Jesus Christ wasn't the Son of God, Savior of the world, and, 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 the, and the proclamation of victory over my sin. But when I was 15, I took a comparative religion class. My teacher was an atheist, really had an issue with, with Christianity, and that was, that was the point at which my faith was first really, really challenged. The questions were really asked, like, do you really believe this stuff? Like, do you really believe that some dude 2,000 years ago said he was God, died, and actually came back from the dead? Yeah. Yeah, I do. But the story of the next 15 years would be 15 years of my faith being challenged at, at, at many times bitterly. Would it, would it survive a religious studies degree at a secular university? 
Would it survive a ministerial degree at Yale? Would it, would it survive the demonic, grinding, dehumanizing assaults of white supremacy, not just in the world, but even in the church? Those things have broken people before. Those things have driven people from the faith before. Those things have made people cry, why, to the Lord before. But brothers and sisters, my testimony is characterized by this, God's providential care. The Lord's consistent sustenance. Through whatever assaults or difficulties I've faced, the Lord has been faithful because he is faithful. And I fully expect him for the rest of my life to be faithful because he has been and that's who he is. And so I want you to consider your own testimony. Consider, consider the time when Jesus came to the well and, and, and sought you out. When he came alongside you in your suffering, when he pointed you to the well of living water, because that work of the Lord in all of its specificity, in all of its glory, that's what you bring into the world. That's what you bring into your workplace. That's what you bring into your families, because each and every one of you has a story and a testimony that is worth sharing. The Lord has worked in your lives, perhaps miraculously. Why would you keep that from your brother or sister? The Samaritan woman's testimony led to basically the salvation of her entire town. Why not yours? And there's, no, and, and, and there's no hierarchy of testimonies. For some of you, the triune God redeemed you out of the muck and the mire, out of despair, out of pain, out of suffering, out of trauma, pulled you out of the ocean and onto dry land, perhaps even through miraculous visions. For others of you, perhaps like me, the triune God revealed God's self, not, 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 maybe not through, through, through these spectacular miracles, but maybe it, was a, maybe it was a more subtle, constant presence, a constant, never-ceasing working in and around you, maybe at times invisible, but always effective. The church and the world need both of those stories. In a world where people are looking for peace and salvation in all kinds of different directions, in a world where you might be looking for peace and salvation in a bunch of different places. The body of Christ is to bear witness to the fact that the only source of salvation is Christ. That the only true source of joy is Christ. That the only true source of peace is Christ. That the only true source of mind-boggling power is Christ. But how will they know if we don't tell them? John 4 is a wonderful chapter of the scriptures in which Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, encounters a Samaritan woman and treats her not with the rebuke that she might expect, but with the care that she needs. And after that experience, she preaches her story to her town, and they decide, we should get to know this Jesus for ourselves. May it be the case that through our testimonies, through our care for the poor and the marginalized, through our elevation of those whom the world may say are less than, but most of all, through our bearing witness to the power, love, and holiness of our God, that people might meet us and think, we should get to know that Jesus for ourselves. Let's pray.